The Rewatchables is brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where you can find our new podcast, the Bakari Sellers Podcast, that launched this week. And we have another podcast called The Camp Chronicles, hosted by Tyler Tynes. Six episodes, that's coming in mid-July. Stay tuned for a couple more announcements on that way. Coming up, you're a goddamn sword book, Captain. Is there anything better in the world? Bobby. The perfect storm. We're going back out. What? I'm headed east. The Flemish Cap. You're going away again? Flemish Cap is almost off the charts. That's where the fish are. For God's sake, don't go. Another trip and the Andrea Gale will own you. Like she owns Billy Tyne. I got a woman I can't stand to be more than two feet away from. And again, I love to fish. I got a quarter million dollars worth of fish. Weather's been spitting faxes every hour. They're running out of scary words. It's being called the worst storm in recorded history. Hurricane Grace is accelerating off of Sable Island. Once it starts, no force on Earth can stop it. These storms have collided. You're gonna run right into this thing. Are they okay? No one knows. Please, God, get them there. Call it the perfect storm. All right, Chris Ryan is here. My name is Bill Simmons. It is the 20th anniversary of a movie that um, was way more successful than I think I remembered. That is yeah. pretty pretty well reviewed by some people that we've discussed in the past on this podcast and uh, is weirdly rewatchable, even though it's depressing as hell. Why is this movie rewatchable when we know how it's going to end and everybody's going to die? I love how vague you are about who we who we respect, whose opinions we were like. Are you talking about Mike Lupica? Like, who are you referring to? Sure. All right, it's Raj. Like, Raj liked this Raj, movie. Raj, Raj gave me three the and a half stars. Uh man, uh, this was this is kind of goes back to a little bit of the essence of of when we started the pod. Where this one, I think, your mileage may vary on the Perfect Storm as a movie, but if you catch it at the right time on cable, it's a I got to sit down and watch this one. And if you if you're if you're on your way out the door, if you're sitting around and you see this sh- the shark come up on the deck, or you see that the Satori is is heading into the storm, you kind of get locked in, man. It's just such an expertly made movie. I get locked in at all points of the movie because the first hour we get Diane Lane's Boston accent, which yes. we're going to be shredding later. Um, so I want to talk about Clooney because I think the Clooney Wahlberg part is such a big piece of this. This movie comes out in two thousand. Clooney, we're trying to make happen as an A-plus lister. We're trying and we're trying to mix results. Wahlberg, improbably, on his way to becoming an A-plus lister, we don't totally realize it yet when this movie comes out. He has the better part in this movie, too. And what's interesting is Clooney's 10 years older than Wahlberg. If this movie came out in 2010, Wahlberg has the Clooney part, right? And- if it comes out five years earlier, Clooney's in the Wahlberg part. It's just one of those parts. Um, from a Clooney standpoint, he never totally got there for me as an A-plus lister. I, I think he made some good ones. Like Even if you look at his last 20 years, he did this. He did Ocean's Eleven, Michael Clayton, Up in the Air, The American, which I enjoyed, The Descendants, Gravity. Nothing in the last seven years, really. But I don't think he ascended to those Matt Damon... I don't know, Leo, obviously, kind of heights. What what was missing? Well, I think that he is better suited to be a megastar in small or offbeat movies than a megastar that's leading a mega movie. And I would even include the Oceans movies as offbeat. I think that the reason why those movies are so special is because they don't feel like any other Hollywood movies in a lot of ways. They feel more like 70s Hollywood movies shot with the glamour of like contemporary Hollywood films. So Clooney's always great when he is like, holy crap, George Clooney's going to be in a Coen Brothers movie or George Clooney's going to have a cameo in Gravity or George Clooney's going to be one part of Syriana or whatever. But when he's actually doing the like, I'm in every shot of a Hollywood blockbuster, he's got some, he's got some, some swing and misses. Yeah. Two things for me. I feel like he's always George Clooney in every movie. 
there's no, it's like George Clooney's playing a character. Let George Clooney cook. He's just George Clooney. You just yeah. kind of maybe change his hair a little bit. Maybe he has a beard, maybe he doesn't. But even if you look at, you know, I thought he was awesome and up in the air. I, I really like that movie. But he's George Clooney. I thought he was really good in Michael Clayton. That's probably like the most successful marriage of a Clooney performance with a really good movie that I think we all like. He's George Clooney. The Descendants, same thing. And you go on down the line and it's just, he he really just had the heater, but he didn't have the curve or the slider. And I think when where he always tried to find the curve or the slider was when he would do like the weird Coen Brothers movie or when he would try to direct, but he just, he just never found it. It just didn't happen. So what do you think is different about the way George Clooney is always George Clooney in a movie compared to the way Harrison Ford is always Harrison Ford in a movie? So good question. There's something about George Clooney as an action guy that did not translate the way it should have for Harrison Ford. Because on paper, you would think he should have been the Harrison Ford of the last 25 years, right? He should have been next generation Harrison Ford. But I don't know if I would have bought him in the Bourne identity. I don't know if he could have had the arc like what... uh you know, what Cruz did with the Mission Impossible. I don't know if you could build the Mission Impossible franchise around George Clooney. They tried to. I think that's what the Peacemaker was supposed to sort of be, is that kind of like international espionage action adventure movie. Right. So going backwards for the younger people, Clooney is bouncing around for a couple of years, shows up on ER, and ER becomes a fucking phenomenon. Like just a phenomenon. One of the all-time TV drama phenomenons of our lifetime. And he becomes a mega, mega star immediately. And that's happening 94, 95 range. So he starts making movies. From 95 to 98, he makes Dust Till Dawn. He makes One Fine Day with Michelle Pfeiffer. He wears the Batman suit. He's in Batman and Robin, which is the most reviled Batman movie out of all the Batman movies. And he's in The Peacemaker, which is supposed to be his franchise, and it wasn't. So that's four years of swings and misses. But he's still on ER. He leaves ER, and then he strikes oil without a sight. And Out of Sight is the first time the George Clooney movie experience matched up to what we thought. And you could argue that might be the best movie he's ever made. And it's certainly the most likable he's been in a movie. And it's probably the most he's clicked with the romantic lead, right? I feel like what he had with J-Lo in that movie, I don't know if he's had that with anybody else to that degree. Do you think he has? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think he's charming with Julia Roberts in the Oceans movies. Um, yeah. But he's nowhere near as... It's not... that that That's like completely like flammable what goes on between him and Jennifer Lopez and out of sight. And I mean, out of sight is something that I think is like now looked at as one of one of the crowning achievements of genre filmmaking in the last like 25, 30 years. But it, at the time was kind of like, Oh, like we're trying to make Elmore Leonard happen. And it's, it's JLo and George and everybody likes this movie, but I don't remember that being like a really big hit, obviously. No, I think it, I think cable really helped it. It, right. So many movies came out in 98, that stuff got lost. And I think it became one of those, it was a good DVD. It was good on the whole TNT Cinemax circuit. And there it went. So then he goes, from that point on, Out of Sight, Thin Red Line, Three Kings, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, and Perfect Storm. You know, one of the things he did, he's, he started directing too in 2002. And just wasn't good at it. I mean, he he made, do you know he's made six, he's directed six movies? I do. Yeah. Yeah. And not a huge win out of any of them and a couple of really bad ones. And I think that kind of knocked his eye off the prize too. But I think from a charisma standpoint, at least he was where Brad Pitt was, I, but Brad Pitt's just a better actor. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that early 2000s run, and he obviously makes the decision after a couple of failed blockbusters that what he's going to do is, for the most part, choose the filmmaker first. So he's going with the Coen brothers. He's going with David O. Russell. Alexander you know, Payne. Alexander Payne. He works with Soderbergh. Um, and I think that that really levels his career out. What you see is that cluster of really, really smart choices. And then the sort of, I don't know, like, 05 on, it's basically like good one, three average to bad ones good one, three average to bad ones. It's It just kind of really spaces out. That's something that happens, I guess, to Hanks like a little bit later in his career. It's like Clooney just had a much more accelerated version of that. You said for the younger people or for people who don't remember, I want to ask you, because I you're we, we've talked about Caruso before. We've talked about yeah. like the inability to like kind of leave uh, 
leave their small screen baggage behind. And I know this sounds weird, but like for somebody, if you watched ER every Thursday, like did you have a little residual like this guy's always going to be Doug Ross ever? A little bit, but I also, it was clear that he had to go. He he was too big of a star for the show. And I, I only think that's happened a few times with network TV. He was one of the biggest stars in the world by, I would say, 97, 98. And I got to say, I, I was a huge ER fan those first four or five years. I really think it's one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite network shows ever. He was amazing on that show. Yeah. Like that Doug Gross character was, it that that checked every box. And he's really good. And you're really invested in him. And I remember he had that one episode where it's now we're just doing ER porn for Juliet Lippman. So shout out to Juliet because she's delighted right now. It's her favorite show. But that one, that one episode where it was like a flood. Yeah. And he had amazing. to navigate the flood. That was like his signature episode. And he was amazing in that. And I, I think the reason I, I bring this up is, you know, we always compare NBA players and NBA situations to movies and the rewatchables. I do feel like by the time you got to 98, he his trade value was about as high as as anybody, right? It was as high as Leo, Matt Damon, I think what the expectations were. So it's weird. I, I feel a little disappointed with how it turned out. I think he made some good movies. He never won an Oscar. He only got nominated once, I think. But he had a lot of misses. And it, maybe that was part of the problem. Maybe he didn't really totally know how to pick a good script. He's definitely had one of the most meta careers it was, it was like when he was still on ER and he was making those more traditional blockbusters. In a weird way, Perfect Storm is like the last movie where it's almost like he's playing it straight. And then after that, you know, I think even maybe the, to some extent, the Ocean's Eleven movies, the only downside of doing that was that it was so winking and so kind of tongue-in-cheek about the idea of being famous or the idea of being buddies with a bunch of famous people and and even some of the conventions of movie making that it seemed like going forward, he was either really earnest or really, really uh, cynical or satirical about being in films. Like it, when you watch a George Clooney movie, I think you're always kind of grappling with like the George Clooney celebrity while you're also watching the movie. Right. Brad Pitt had that too, but he overcame it. He did. He did. Especially like in a movie like Moneyball which was a charisma performance, which we covered on a previous episode of The Rewatchables. Brad Pitt also um, physically transforms in a lot of his roles, whereas Clooney has really only done that in Syriana. And he fucked up his back. And like he basically, like you know, I think, got to the precipice of being like, I'm having like pretty much a physical breakdown playing this role. Uh, and I won an Oscar for it, but was still like, you know, was still, I think, kind of like came back out the other side. We're not going to see him go through those kind of like, Edward Norton, Brad Pitt kind of transformations. I think he's like, I play George Clooney. Yeah, that was kind of his torn ACL when he got hurt. I, it <laughs> yeah. might have removed him from some action things. His best chance to actually win Best Actor, the NBA MVP of, of the Oscars, was the 2011 season. <laughs> and he's in a category with the dude from The Artist, Demian Bashir in A Better Life, Gary Oldman in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and Brad Pitt in Moneyball. And I look at that year, he he has the best part of all of those parts. Because The Descendants is really good. I watched yeah. it two months ago. Yeah, That's a part where you probably should have won the Oscar for that part. And I think if there's a couple other actors in that spot, I do think they win it. So my point is really good. I think, you know, if to borrow the NBA analogy again, you could sell tickets with him. He could take you to the second round, maybe even a conference finals but I don't know if you're winning the title with him. Is that fair? Yeah, I'm trying to think of like the comp now because I it, he's got more to him than like a... Is it like a Tracy McGrady? Yeah, I mean, that, <laughs> that might... I was going to say like, what is it like? Lam, is it LaMarcus? Like, I'm not even sure who... No, he's better than he's LaMarcus. He's got so much more ch ch charm. Yeah, it, I think T-Mac is a really good example of it. Yeah. The highs are incredibly high, but the floor, it's a little wobbly. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Wahlberg, he goes 96 to 2000, where he's basically still Marky Mark. He does basketball diaries. He tries to shed the whole, I'm, I'm not just that dude, whatever. Makes fear. Boogie Nights is the breakthrough. The big hit, The Corruptor, Three Kings, and then Perfect Storm. He's perfectly cast in this movie. It's a, it's a really likable performance. 
he taps into all of his uh, inner Boston. And in general, this movie is really well cast. But by the time this comes out and we see Wahlberg in this movie after Three Kings, it becomes clear he's a movie star, right? Yeah. I mean, he he is actually a really interesting case study of somebody trying to... It's almost like seems like he can't be denied. Like he Mm. goes through these movies where he's playing supporting parts. He's working with smaller directors. He's working on big films. He's he does like Planet of the Apes, and it's like, oh, is this guy is this guy situating himself to be like a like a huge blockbuster star? And he kind of then just makes a third way where he's like, I'm just going to make Mark Wahlberg movies, and Mm. those Mark Wahlberg movies can be in a bunch of different go in a bunch of different directions, especially over the last like 15 years. He's pretty much made like um, 1.5 movies a year. And sometimes they're like, you know, um, contraband and stuff like that or or shooter. They're like kind of like these more traditional genre movies. And then every once in a while, he takes a big swing. I am very surprised by how his career turned out. So did you, are you, are you, do you surprise because you thought it would go better than this or worse? I mean, go back to 96. He's in Boogie Nights and he's the star of Boogie Nights. And there's all these people in the movie. You're just reading about it. And like Burt Reynolds is in this. Julian Moore, I like her. Philip Seymour Hoffman liked him. And, and you're just going through the cast, but it was like, but the, the star is Mark Wahlberg. And this is a movie that everybody's going nuts about. That doesn't make sense. He can't lead a movie. And, you know, by I think by the time we got to the end of the decade, it made sense. It's like, all right, I get what this guy is. I actually thought he was going to go more in the action you know, kind of that Nick Cage stretch that when Nick Cage was doing Con Air face off and that that whole stuff. I thought that was just gonna be Mark Wahlberg's next 20 years. He did it a couple of times, like shooters like that. Uh the Italian job. Every time he does that, I'm happy. But he also has tried to do some other stuff too. I think that Perfect Storm is actually the model for the movies that he would seemingly prefer to be making. Because if they hadn't made Perfect Storm, Peter Berg and Mark Wahlberg probably would have eventually made it. You know what I mean? Oh, God. Like, you know, Lone Survivor and Patriot Day. And, you know, um, he has made these based on a true story, everyday blue-collar heroism movies like a a bunch of times over the last 10 years. It would have been called The Perfect Storm. It would have been called Buabi. (laughs) B-A-W-B-Y. Mark Wahlberg is Buabi. The cast in this is pretty great. Diane yeah. Lane, John C. Riley, John Hawks, William Fickner, mm-hmm. little Bob Gutton, the warden. Yeah. Mary, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. Mastrantonio, yeah. Survives her Scarface death, still has <laughs> having a career 17 years later. Cherry Jones, the president. Yeah. Chris McDonald. The weatherman. Michael yeah. Ironside. They got everybody out here for this. And it's like for Hawks and John C. Riley, I think this movie comes out before everybody is aware of just how much better those guys are as character actors than almost mm. everybody else. So when you're watching it and you're watching like Alan Payne, shout out to New Jack City, and a bunch of the guys in this movie, you're just kind of like, how the fuck is John C. Riley the fourth guy on a boat here? And you just realize they kind of hit the character actor lottery. And that's really what all of these kind of big budget action-packed movies of this era lived or died by. I mean, this is like basically what we talked about with Armageddon. Armageddon has such a good cast it has no business having. There's no reason why Buscemi, Owen Wilson, and all those guys should be in a movie like that. Billy Bob Thornton. The same thing goes for this. It's like we're essentially talking about a bunch of guys getting water poured on them in a backlot tank somewhere. You know what I mean? And they've got two of the best character actors of their generation in it. Yeah, Hawks had to fight Buscemi for the role, and Hawks won. That comes yeah, out of that's right. research. They've had to fight to the death. Hawks <laughs> is really good in this movie. Yeah, yeah Hawks is awesome. near and dear to our hearts, in, including uh, his pivotal Miami Vice cameo in the two thousand six Miami Vice <laughs> really? movie. That's quite a cameo. It's <laughs> quite a cameo. This movie made uh, three hundred twenty-eight million dollars. It was obviously inspired by a real story, Hurricane Grace. Um. In late October, early November, 1991, took took out a boat with six people from Gloucester. So they did the classic um, based on a true story. They threw that at the top. As we've learned over the years and as we've discussed of the rewatchables, sometimes that doesn't always mean what you're about to see is true. I would- 
I never believe that. And I actually think it's like that's now become like I want to meet the person out there who turns to their buddy in a theater when we had movie theaters. And when the trailer says based on true events or based on a true story, they're like, fucking this one's based on a real story, man. We better take this pretty seriously. Right. Didn't didn't know. Had no idea. <laughs> um, I Based is such a loaded fluid word. Term. Yeah, it's yeah, fluid. Yeah. Somebody could make a, a movie about us finishing a rewatchables podcast and then like fighting for the future of the world because Russian spies infiltrated as we're trying to uh, produce it or something. They probably will. It'll be called the Craig Horlbeck story. And we'll be like these secondary <laughs> the characters. Files. We die when John Hawks dies in Miami Vice. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, that would be based based on a true story of two guys who did the rewatchables. And then you can do whatever the fuck you want. I'm always uh, I'm always dubious of that, but it was based on a true story, and I don't want to I don't want to get bogged down on the research of what was true and not true. But for the most part, they were pretty faithful, and they really did care about doing it correctly because um, the people in Gloucester were, you know, this was a traumatic seminal event for them, and they weren't yeah. going to fuck around with the story. So there's a couple small things in there. Well, that it's we'll also get to. it's based on the Sebastian Younger book. And yep. I think it's worth noting that for as much as, and if you look at the Wikipedia page and we can do this in internet research about the issues that some of the actual people connected to the people on the Andrea Gale had with, you know, or on the, on these boats had with the storytelling. I think the reason why this movie is still works is because it's, it, it balances the sentimentality of all the Diane Lane stuff back on the docks with this is just what happens. Like they kind of don't, they don't really pull any punches. Now it might not be exactly what happened, but when it comes to like, if you're watching Apollo 13, even if you're watching like Backdraft, which I know has like kind of some, some dark stuff happen it, but you're kind of like, I, I feel like Backdraft has to end in a certain way. With this, you're kind of waiting for George Clooney to save Mark Wahlberg's life or for Mary Elizabeth Mastentronio to come through at the very end and scoop these guys up or something. And it just doesn't happen. It's it's way darker than that. You like the Stuck at Sea movies? Stuck at Sea, something's going wrong. Are you I, in on that? I love them. I love them because it's a deep fear of mine. I get really seasick. Yeah. I would rather never be on a boat. I never am like happy to be on a boat. Uh, I don't even like being in like motorized rafts taking me anywhere. Like I, I just it's not that I don't trust them. I just get seasick really easily. So I think that the more that you're like this is almost inconceivable. The easier it is to watch, but it is also like, it taps into a different fear, you know? What are your favorites? Just out of curiosity. Well, we talked about this recently. Uh, Fantasy and, and me and Amanda talked about this recently. I have a couple that are kind of random. Like, um, I really like White Squall, mm. uh, which is a, a really cool movie um, with Jeff Bridges that came out in the like in the 90s. Um, but after that, they're, they're definitely like, you know, like Master and Commander has some stranded in sea stuff. We've gone over Master and Commander a lot with the Gladiator pod. What about you? Dead Calm. Dead Calm's great. Yeah. I mean, it's cliche, but Titanic was, was really well done and, and enjoyable. Yeah. Open it's a Water. It's really good movie. Did you ever see Open Water? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Open, open Water. I think The Shallows isn't necessarily a boat movie, but she's stuck in the water like that. I think both of those... The Shallows rips off open water. Yeah. But um, the Castaway, obviously. Mm -hmm. The um, Reef is really good. The Reef is is one where it's like basically like a boat hits a reef in shark-infested waters and these people have to decide whether to stay on the boat while it's sinking or swim back like, yeah, I don't know, 20-something miles. So yeah. All is Lost with Redford. And then there's there's movies that have scenes that have worked really well. Like Sleeping with the Enemy has a great <laughs> sailboat. All hell is breaking loose. Yeah. Laura! <laughs> Laura! <laughs> Promise me we get to do that one at some point. She can't swim! We have to do From Hell Week where we do sleeping, we do Hand the Rocks oh, From the Hell Month would be great. Yeah, Pacific Heights. Yeah. I'm not kidding when I say I could do an hour on uh, Laura's, Laura's uh, Violent Husband. It's a tour de force by Patrick Bergen. Also, I watched Domestic Disturbance again about two <laughs> weeks ago. And uh, that movie's really special. For the people out there, if you, like your, if you like your From Hell movies mixed in with a little unintentional comedy and a little ridiculousness, I highly recommend it. If they offered Stars FH, Stars From Hell, would you subscribe? 
Oh, yeah. Would you add it to your cable package? Yeah. Like, if that was the only way to see all those movies? Yeah. yeah. Domestic Disturbance has some great Buscemi. Like, really, really, oh, I forgot really about that. great it's been a, Buscemi. It's been a minute since I've seen Domestic Disturbance. Oh, it's so good. Highly recommend it for everybody out there. Um, Roger Ebert, 3.5 stars. Quote, the perfect storm is a well-crafted example of a film of pure sensation. Raj. Raj is all about the story. Stick to the story. We covered it in the Fletch pod. Are you being true to the story? Yeah, and he's he's shouting out, uh, intentionally or not, Wolfgang Peterson, who was on I was going to say, you get give me 45 seconds on Wolfgang. Just a real heater from him right now because he does this and he does In the Line of Fire with Clint Eastwood and Malkovich and he just shows that he is like an absolute expert in staging set pieces and pacing. And I think that this movie does a really good job of when shit goes wrong. Like in mm. Titanic, you're sitting around for like two and a half hours before shit starts going on wrong. You can you can wait too long. You can also introduce shit going wrong too early. Like it can sometimes you're watching a movie and the first scene is like we love Unstoppable, the Tony Scott movie we talked about with Quentin. But like that movie, like the train starts to go wrong about 18 minutes in. You have about an hour and a half in the perfect storm before they're like, we're going into a perfect storm. So yeah. I think that they really do a good job. He's he's an expert at pacing and an expert at set pieces. Tony Scott's version of the perfect storm. There's a lot more going on. There's there's some there there's more waves they're hitting. Way more people are falling overboard. There's probably the boat has more than six people on it. Gandolfini's in it, and he kills a guy at some point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's a mutiny. There's a mutiny on the boat at one right. point. The only other thing before we get to the categories is this was a really effective commercial. Huh. Yeah. And I remember specifically knowing the story, especially living in Massachusetts at the time, and then seeing the trailer, all these people I like, and then that one brief shot where they just, they teased the wave. They would show the giant wave in the commercial and you'd be like, but then that was it. And you're like, oh. So- Watching this movie, you know that wave is coming. It's yeah. it's like the shark from Jaws, basically. And uh, in the theater, the CGI, which at that point, 2000, they're getting better at CGI. It's not anything close to where it is now. That, scene's a, that scene was amazing on a 70-foot movie screen. It really yeah, and, was. It really it, great. For whatever the movie loses when you see that's obviously like a fake boat and a fake wave and this is a CGI situation, the stuff on deck feels incredibly real. Oh, like yeah. all the stuff on the boat with those guys getting thrown around and the whole, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, in rewatchable scenes, like a couple of those sequences. You're like, dude, that's Clooney. And he is, he is hanging over the side of this boat. This is mm. wild. Hey, if you've been dealing with acne, redness, dark spots, or wrinkles, finding treatment that works can be complicated. You need skincare that actually performs, but getting started can be overwhelming. Thankfully, there's a solution. Roman makes it convenient to get customized prescription skincare that really performs. Grab your phone or computer, complete a free online consultation. You'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if appropriate, a doctor will prescribe a custom blended treatment based on your skin type and priorities. You'll receive your custom skincare treatment with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor if you need to make a change to your treatment or have any questions. With Roman, no commitments, cancel anytime. Go to GetRoman.com slash Rewatch to try out a three-month supply of Nightly Defense for just $5. It's free to chat with the doctor. Your first order is just $5. Once again, GetRoman.com slash Rewatch. Eligibility requirement and additional terms do apply. All right, we'll do the categories. Most rewatchable scene. Clooney goes to the crow's nest. Tells them they got to go back out. He's hurting. Didn't really get the, the haul of fish that he wanted from the last one. Sometimes you're fearless leader, Captain Billy Tyne. But I got a feeling Big Skip has come to give us some bad news, huh? Lady's not only pretty, she's smart. Yeah, we're going back out. What'd I tell you? <laughs> when? A few days. A oh, few means two? Two days is right. Boys don't want your sight or replacements a phone call away. Join me. Don't join me. This time this season for one last shot, and the Andrew Gale's gonna take it. This time I promise you, come back with a shitload of fish. Excuse me, man. I 
there's a lot I like about this scene because it's where we get introduced to Diane Lane, who's completely over the top, just this entire movie. Yeah. Um, I just want to say, and th- this actually makes it more rewatchable to me. This is the happiest bar that's ever happened in the North Shore. No <laughs> bar has ever been this joyous. The North Shore is not a joyous place. It's like an intense, just you're sitting at a bar, you're looking around and there's just people that you can just feel the history and the pain in their lives or people that are just, all they want to do is pound a beer and then go outside so they can smoke another cigarette. This bar is like, it's like the, uh, the beautiful girl scene Bob when they're Marley. singing Neil Diamond. Yeah. They're listening to no woman, no cry. And it's like, it's where like is this? An orgy is happening like in <laughs> elsewhere. And also everybody seems to live there, which yeah. is like, I'm like, is this dazed and confused or what's going on? If you went to that bar in real life, it would just be super quiet. There would be Red Sox games on two different channels and, and it would just be people smoking heaters and drinking. Yeah. And they would all smell of three day old swordfish and and Marlboro Reds and, and wild Turkey. That's how you could tell that, um, Wolfgang Peterson, what country is he from? (laughs) Germany? Like Norway or something. Yeah. Yeah. Norway. That's where you could tell this was made by somebody who doesn't actually live here. He is German. Yeah. My bad. His sure. his version of what the crow's desk could be like. Hey, can we make it a little more joyous? Like, all right, Wolfgang, I guess yeah, we'll try. It's not October I really Fest. enjoy all of that stuff, and that's also that we get to meet a lot of characters. It's just fun. So, do you consider this the the Chris sequence? Like, when when do we talk about Diane? No, we're waiting on that. Okay. Next speech, or next uh, rewatchable scene, Clooney's speech to Linda, which he decides not to do in the Boston accent. <laughs> Clooney in general is kind of like, he, he sampled it. It was like he tried the shrimp cocktail with the cocktail sauce and was like, eh, I tried one. I'm good. I'm just going to be me. Yeah. He decided he just wanted to summer in the Cape. He didn't want to move there. Here's the speech. If he, this is the speech he gives to Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio if he had actually used the Boston accent. The fog's just lifting. Throw off your bowline, throw off your stern. You head out to South Channel, past Rocky Neck, 10-pound island, past Niles Pond, where I skated as a kid. Blow your air horn. Throw away to the lighthouse keeper's kid at Thatcher Island. Then the birds show up, black backs, herring gulls, big dump ducks. The sun hits you. Head north. Open up to 12. Steaming now. The guys are busy. You're in charge. You know what? You're a goddamn sword boat captain. Is there anything better in the world? Clooney does it straight, like he's yeah. George Clooney. There's no yeah. accent at all. Lifelong Gloucester sword boat captain who has no accent at all, even though yeah. he's around a, a bunch of hardcore. You can't get more hardcore Massachusetts than when you go to like the fucking tip of the North Shore. Do you think Wahlberg was on set that day? <laughs> you think Wahlberg? I think, <laughs> I think Wahlberg probably felt he was outranked. Yeah. And yeah, maybe yeah. went to Wolfgang and was like, Hey man, and Wolfgang's like George? it all sounds like a Boston accent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wolfgang's like, I think it's fine, Mark. Mark's like, yeah, you know, I maybe should he try it? I know they had a dialect coach. The dialect coach, by the way, one of the big losers of the movie because the dialects are all over the place. Anyway, I like that speech. Next rewatchable scene when the uh, the boat sets sail, we get some good Wahlberg and Clooney. I like every scene when Wahlberg and Clooney are together. I'm in. Hey, not intruding, am I, Skip? You're a natural. You got some old salt in your blood. Thanks, Skip. Hey, you're a happy man out here, aren't you, Skip? Today, maybe. Well, when do you get unhappy? The day we go home. Home? I thought the sea was your home. You got some Um, salt in you. Riley goes overboard, another rewatchable scene. Fickner has to save him, even though they have some weird beef that's never really explained. That's that's a really good scene. They go down, he's like basically dead in the water. They revive him. Um, I like when the storm heats up and Clooney's driving the boat like a maniac, not realizing how dangerous it is yet. But he's almost like if my son was in control of the boat for an hour. Yeah. Big smile on his face, laughing. Um, Clooney... That whole crazy scene when he blowtorches the anchor off is really great. Awesome. When he's swinging around, it's completely unrealistic. I don't know how they did it, but it's enjoyable. And then uh, two more. The guys start falling in the water. 
when Wahlberg saves John Hawks. I just like John Hawks. Don't want him to die. And then um, when they seem like they survive, when the boat does the 360 flip in the water and makes the turn. And the sun comes out. And Clooney's like, we made it. Skip, we're going to make it. Yeah. And it's like, no, you actually didn't make it. You got two storms colliding at the same time. All of those scenes are awesome, but the most rewatchable scene is when that wave actually crushes them. That That is the best scene in this movie. I mean, it's the best scene in the movie. I don't know if rewatchable makes it seem like you're like, well, you got to dial this back. I want to watch that again. I mean, it is True. heartbreaking. When the sun goes back behind the clouds and he's like, They're, it's not going to let us out. She's not going to let us out. I remember the first time I saw that, I did not know how this movie ended. I did yeah. not know the real story. And the sun comes out and they're like, ah, ha, ha, I can't believe it. And Wahlberg's done the whole, like, I'm going to go race go-karts full time and, you know, Salisbury Beach. And you're just like, great, they got out, man. Maybe we, we, we really have lived to say another day. It is fucking dark when the sun goes behind the clouds, man. Well, they were able to keep mystery with how they ended it in 2000. This is the Blair Witch era. This mm -hmm. is still the remnants of the Crying Game era where you could actually keep secrets. So there was a question of how are they going to do this? And then if you actually went and saw in the theater, the internet wasn't kind of fortified enough yet to have people just spoil what they Yeah, and was. I think also most people, even if they were like, yeah, well, I mean, I know that some people die in this movie, but you figure it's going to be like Hawks or Riley or Fickner going some like midway through the movie and then maybe mm. one of Wahlberg and Clooney. But like when it all happens and they're all just sitting in their bunks, like, oh shit, man, I just, I really remember that. Yeah. Last hour is really strong. I don't like a lot of the Coast Guard stuff, but we'll get to that in a second. What's age the best? Gloucester. Just great to, it's just such an underrated part of Massachusetts. Where, so where did they shoot this? Dedham? I think they shot some of it in Dedham, but I do think they shot, a lot of the Gloucester stuff in in Gloucester. Um, the Crow's Nest, just like, I think that exists in real life. I like that. Um, here's what's aged the best for me, or at least one of the things. A Reed Rothschild, Dirk Diggler reunion. <laughs> Riley and Wahlberg, four years later, they're back. Riley's got a huge beard. Wahlberg looks like, Dirt kind of in the last scene when he's at Alfred Molina's house. Yeah. Just coked out. <laughs> Has that kind of look. But yeah, the the boys are back. I was thinking, um, you know how they they people on YouTube they do trailers with shit and yeah, they, 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 they take, react to the trailers. Yeah. No, 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 when they take footage from a movie and make a trailer out of it that's a completely different trailer than what the movie was actually about. Yeah, honest trailers or whatever, yeah. I think you could do a Jack Horner movie trailer. You use the Boogie Nights footage with Jack Horner talking about they they had this idea for a movie and then it's just like a perfect storm porn. <laughs> the fisherman always calls twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. When, <laughs> yeah. Per, perfect storm in my pants. Um anyway, I, it was good to see those guys again. I I also have for what stage the best Wahlberg's accent, facial hair, attitude, everything. Tour de force. John Hawks mentioned him. This is for you. It aged the best for me, but specifically just Chris Catnip. An incredible moment when the crew's just having cigs on the deck. A lot of smoking. When the boat's out. Yeah, it's a good smoking movie where you're just like, oh, I get, it's one of those movies where you're like, oh, I get, I get smoking. I get the value. Also, you're I mean, you have to imagine how bad that boat smells. Oh my God. So they're eating essentially Hormel chili. They've got, however many tons of dead fish barely iced in the hull, you're probably like, I, I need these Marlboro Reds just to kill the overwhelming odor coming off of the other human beings on this boat. Oh, yeah. Anyway. So I would be like chain smoking. Yeah. That was the initial perfect storm was the BO on the boat. It was the perfect storm. Of body <laughs> Christopher air. McDonald was like, look. <laughs> um, more would say the best. The really good music. Uh-huh. I think they did a nice job matching the music with like the tension on the boat. And then... um. And Those guys definitely I, seem like a group of people who unironically enjoy ZZ Top's tush. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, I really like the the John C. Riley William Fickner feud, which is never really addressed or elaborated on. It's just that classic action movie thing where we're like, hey, we need two of these guys not to like each other. Well, what would it be? Oh, what if Fickner maybe 
took a crack at Riley's ex-wife and then brings it up. Cool, done. And then we they get like 20 minutes of mileage out of it. Sullivan, you want to play with the light stick, why don't you stick them up your ass? Hey, easy, man, will you? Guy's dead weight, been screwing around all night. Juicer in the head. Cape band, bottom shelf. Yeah, well, your wife didn't feel that way. I like that it's not... I mean, he makes the he makes the illusion about like Riley's wife or whatever, but I like that it's not some like blood feud. It's just two guys who, who hate each other. It's just two guys yeah. stuck in close quarters who are just sick of each other immediately. And Riley never gives him a break. And people are like, "Man, why don't you just give that guy like a little bit of a break?" And he's like, "No, fuck that guy." I love that's a great that's a great energy to bring to the whole thing because it makes everything more tense. If you're just like. Oh, I'm really pulling for these guys. They have no problems whatsoever. It's just a little bit more vanilla. There's a deleted scene where Riley tells Fickner he has a phone call and Fickner answers it. And Riley says, because I'm talking to a dead man on the other line here. <laughs> an empty telephone. <laughs> it's an empty telephone. There's a dead man on the other line. Man. <laughs> I can't say Fickner into anything without thinking of him as Van, Van Zandt. Yeah, I know. Even when he's he's undoing the bomb in Armageddon, you're just right. like he's just getting his bonds back. <laughs> he's in, he's a fisherman in this movie with a Massachusetts accent, and I just keep expecting Henry Rollins to come in and behind him. Um, what do you have for what stage the best? I think probably. Uh, the stuff in the beginning of the movie where at the at the crow's nest, like all the like interactions between them, the old guy who's like the barnacle on the bar who's like kind of scaring everybody with his war stories. I also really like um, that first scene where Ironside is paying guys out and you find mm. out like how fucking like small the margins are for these guys. Right. So he's just like, here's how much the fish got. Here's what gas and bait and everything costs. My cut, your captain's cut, and then you're a rookie, so you get a three, like a half share or whatever, three quarter share. And just to, to imagine, because it immediately makes you realize that like these guys are essentially going to get killed for their survival instincts, because their survival instincts are like, I need to make rent for the rest right. of the year, you know? Right. Uh, well, speaking of Ironside, he's also in What's Age the Worst. His accent is rough. Yeah. I don't I actually don't totally understand why they cast him because it's so easy to just cast find somebody from Massachusetts who just seems like a diehard Massachusetts guy. It's not like it's not like Tommy Lee Jones is in this part. It's Michael Ironside. Like we Or can they find- could have just cast anyone to do anything. Like I fucking love Michael Ironside. Me too. But you could have just had like Stellan Skarsgard and I wouldn't have blinked if it was right. just like Bob Billy going out again. Not with my boat. Like you just would have been like, fine, Stellan Skarsgård. You're, I, I know you know the water. You know, <laughs> like I would have had like Dickie Barrett from the Mighty Mighty Bostones. <laughs> he was a little young. Like I want to go like hardcore Massachusetts in that spot. Uh, another what's age the worst? We mentioned Clooney's accent comes and goes, and then eventually just goes, yeah. and it's just gone, and we never see it again. I, and so he did is, not coordinate with Master Antonio. That's the thing, is that those guys are not exchanging notes about, hey, this scene, we'll both do the Boston accent. Sometimes she shows up and does it. He doesn't. Sometimes he does and she doesn't. It's just really it's some mis miscommunication there. The accents, they just did not do a good enough job because then you have Wahlberg who's just crushing it and John Hawks who was really committed to it. Um, so this is a pet peeve of mine. John C. Riley's son, they do this in movies sometime where where the dad talks about how much the kid means and then the kid's just a dibwit. Just say they go to the car, the kid's just got this dumb look on his face. Isn't the kid like five? No, he's like eight. Like have a what, you think he's gonna be doing hard calculus? to have a personality or in a movie. The kid's just staring <laughs> what do you at him want like it? A, So what do you expect that kid to do? He's staring at John C. Riley the same way like like my dog Willie would stare at me if I was holding a treat in the air. He's just kind of like glazed. Look at him. It's like Bill. If it? your dad was this, first of all, if your dad was in Boogie Nights, you might be a little bit intimidated. <laughs> Second of all, it hurt, his dad is like standing there in a rain slicker, smoking eighty four Marlboro Reds in his face. I think he's yeah. probably just a little bit like have a little personality. <laughs> a little personality never hurt. Uh, another what's age the worst? Let's just get to it now. The the Diane Lane. Actually, let's not get to it yet. Because okay. I have another spot that I really want to dive into it. But Diane Lane's accent is legendary. And there's a lot of kind con- of like even Russell and I last night where I was texting 
about uh, Diane Lane's accent, and it just sets off this round of the worst Boston accents of all time. It's a conversation everyone's had, and you you talk like JFK, uh, not JFK, uh, Kevin Costner in Thirteen Days, Jeff Bridges in Blown Away. Like it, there's like seven or eight OGs. Diane Lane is usually the first one mentioned. Yes, I think because she comes out throwing 101 in this movie. Like it's it's not she hits certain words that way or a couple of lines. She is she looks like she was in immersive dialect school for nine months, but was only had like one ear working. So I love Diane Lane. Me too. But she really, really, really is flying without a net here. Go back, Bobby. Go back to what you did before. Pack hard, repair tackle. I'm sick of that. It's safe. Yeah, all right, let's do this now. Okay. The thing that hurts is that I love Diane Lane. And there's a couple problems with casting her in this. One is that she's just too beautiful. She overpowered. You're just not buying her in any situation like this. Like she has to be like the lady in Unfaithful. That's how you want to use Diane Lane. It's almost like she's penalized by just how gorgeous she is. So the movie she's always succeeded in is always like tapped into how incredible Diane Lane is. Right. Um, there is nobody ever in the history of Massachusetts, <laughs> ever, <laughs> not ever, who acted like that. <laughs> if you were like the quote unquote hot lady in Gloucester, even if you were divorced, whatever, um, you, you just, you, it would be more like in that Blake Lively in the town kind of vibe. Like you would be divorced. You'd have a little, you'd have some baggage. You're stepping on my point a little bit. And I don't even know what my point is. But did you know that both of these characters are named Chris? <laughs> oh, there and you go. I, I'm trying to figure out like what it is about Chris from Massachusetts that is like elicits this kind of like dramatic interpretation. But you're right. It should be, she should have a much worse drinking problem or something. There's, There's got to be, be a bigger Achilles heel than I hate when my boyfriend goes on fishing yeah, trips. Yeah, it can't just be... I love houseplants. Like that can't be her defining characteristic or like I'm going to like really tidy up this cottage while 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 Bobby's on 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 this trip. She has like she's just seeming like I like it also is like it defies belief as to why Bobby would go away. You're just like stick it yeah. out with her, you know? Yeah, stick it out with Diane Lane. You you have the hottest girlfriend in America. <laughs> yeah, I think it just doesn't work. None of it works and then she really tries I admire the attempt. She tries to do, as I've always said, like the Boston accent is half attitude. So she tries to have this character that has a lot of attitude, but you can't see past it because it's Diane Lane and she has this terrible Boston accent and you just can't unsee it the whole time. There's no, there's nothing authentic about it. Not one thing. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty key part. But the good news is it's Diane Lane. You get to at least look at her for two hours so that there could be worse things. It also, she's not entirely well served by the fact that like half of what she has to say is like a Hallmark greeting card speech where, you know, like that whole thing that she's doing about like, you know, it ain't great shakes. You know, the whole thing about the apartment and buying the curtains and two semi-down pillows from JCPenney's that I didn't tell you about, you know? Like, right. And all this stuff is just like, what the fuck is she talking about? Well, it's weird. It's it's the wet blanket girlfriend from a sports movie. Right. The you can't win, don't do this kind of vibe crossed with this person who doesn't exist where it's like my boyfriend's back from a trip. I'm sprinting to him like Usain Bolt and jumping on him like he just got back from a seven-year tour in Afghanistan. Right. And it's like, you don't exist. This, per this human <laughs> being is not a real person in any way. Um, so anyway. Tough one for Diane Lane. Casting what ifs. Um, ben Affleck was originally sought to be Bobby. Wahlberg's character, he said no. Nick Cage signed up to be Bobby. Was to be forced Bobby? to back out because he, he had other Bobby? commitments. Not yeah, he's going to be Bobby. I see. I think he would have been a good Billy. I think he would have been a good Captain Ahab. Listen, Nick Cage needed to be in this movie. Is the bottom line. <laughs> we we really we were all robbed. Nick Cage needed to be somewhere in this Nick thing. Cage should have been the old guy at the bar. You know who else wanted to play Bobby? Clooney. Oh, interesting. And Wolfgang was like, no, 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 you're going to be Billy. Huh. 
So that happened. And then uh, Harrison Ford and Mel Gibson turned down Billy. Mel Gibson wanted $25 million to be Billy. Hmm. Mel Gibson, that would have... That would have been uh, <laughs> adventure. That would have been uh, rough for a variety of reasons. Um, best that guy, aka the Joey Pants Award. I need a ruling. Are Michael Ironside and Bob Gunton? Do they qualify as that guys? I think well, Bob Gunton does. Let's go Gunton because he spends most of the movie in the dark and in the rain. Uh, yeah, and and is and I I, mean, I guess we should actually talk about this. How do you feel? Or on rewatch, how did you feel about? the Satori plotline and the Coast Guard plotline. Because those, movies, I have that, those in, take up a lot of the second half of the movie. Hold that thought. I have it coming up in picking nits. Okay. Some nits will be picked. All right, let's go yeah, Bob, Bob Gunton. Gunton. Yeah. I thought when he called the uh, Coast Guard guy obtuse, I thought I thought that was weird. <laughs> it's a yes. Shawshank joke. Sorry. Yes. Uh, he told the Coast Guard guy he was going to cast him down with the sodomites. Yeah. He's <laughs> like, no, no, Bob, wrong movie. Uh, Kept asking the Coast Guard guy to do his taxes. The Vincent Hanna, give me all you got award for overacting. There's only one candidate. Diane Lane. You're counting your money. And my guy's out there risking his life for a bunch of stupid fish. That's the game. I hate the game. I hate the goddamn game. Do you hear me? Do you read me? Again, love Diane Lane. Huge fan. Ethel, I'm going crazy over here. Yeah. Oh my God. She's just so bad in this movie. It's so weird because she's so good in other movies. Yeah. I, it's just bizarre. Deanne Waiters Award. Christopher McDonald? I would go McDonald. I think Payne is up there. Mm. Uh, Hawks is in it too much. Can't give it to him. Is Fickner in it too much too? Like, do you consider yeah, everybody on the deck much. in it too much? Yeah, he's in it too much. Okay, Christopher McDonald. Okay. Recasting couch. Thought exercise. Mm -hmm. You replace William Fickner's part with Ben Affleck. He gets uh, to break out his accent. He's younger than John C. Riley, which would piss him off because I think it just it changes the trajectory of Affleck's career too much. He becomes like a character actor instead of a movie star. No, he's a movie star already at this point. He's so already want, he's been in Armageddon. Okay, he's been in a bunch so of stuff. If he's he's slumming it that, in a Boston. If movie. he's gonna do that, he has to die saving someone. You have to make that like a bigger, more meaningful part then. So he dies saving John C. Riley. Yes. That's what has to happen then. Well, it is based on a true story. We can do whatever the fuck we want. Yeah. See, here here's the thing though, and this is why I brought it up. I think Affleck needed a couple parts like that during that arc from 97 to 03, where he's just trying to be A-list guy in the poster in every movie he's in. You know what? Not a bad idea to be like the fourth lead in Perfect Storm. You're in it for 20 minutes and you die. That was what I thought of. It. Yeah, I think that I agree with you. I think that he needed probably maybe a part or two that's kind of like Kevin Bacon in Apollo 13. Like just kind of like you're a movie star, but you're just hanging out in this one. Half fast internet research. None of the fish in the movie were real. They were all either rubber or animatronic. Wolfgang Peterson, huge animal rights guy. Yeah. No fish were harmed in the making this movie. The real Linda, Mary Elizabeth Bastiatonio's yeah. character. Greenlaw. Returning yeah. to sword fishing in 2008 was part of the Discovery Channel series Swords, Life on the Line. Uh, I mentioned the family members of Billy Tyne and Dale Murphy did not like the movie. They sued Time Warner in 2000 and uh, and it kind of didn't go anywhere, but took up a couple of years. They, the major discrepancies were Linda never actually placed a distress call. Yes. Yeah. And there was no romance between Clooney's character and Master Antonio's character. That was I think all there's also up. an element to it. And this is why I think the Tyne family got mad is that they were not, they were on their way back already when this storm hit. And Linda Greenlaw seems to say, like, I don't think that this was a matter of them being arrogant about their ability to get through a storm. I think that this hit them very fast and it was it was over relatively quickly. Right. right. That's not as good of a movie. Yeah. I mean, twist. in the last 20 minutes of this movie, when they're coasting back in and they get nailed, like that's not as good as we can dump the fish and hang out and live or take our chances going through this storm. In real life, they're like playing cards and just on the way back and the storm shows up and crushes them. Yeah. yeah. And then I think the, the the cool thing that that kind of, well, it, it depends. Like, I think that it's really interesting to rewatch this movie over and over again 
and kind of notice the different movie that's being told on camera versus the movie that's being presented with all the elements of the movie. Specifically, like the score is really triumphant and sentimental and Hollywood. So when you're listening to the music while you're watching the movie, you're like, oh man. But when you watch this movie, the depiction of Billy Tyne is very much like a guy who's like completely driven to oblivion where he's just like, I am the best. I am still a fisherman. I still get the fish and I can figure this out and I will, you know, I will make that depth, you know, basically. And he's going to go through these waves. And so he's kind of like this maniac captain in this movie. Bo Goldman received an on-screen credit for having co-written the script. Oh, yeah. You're not going to believe this. Clooney did a lot of practical jokes in the set. A lot of stuff with fake fish. Uh, Hawks, Wahlberg, and Diane Lane all said the jokes were funny, lightened up the sometimes grueling shooting, but none got into specifics. By all accounts, it didn't seem like it was that fun to film this movie. It, I don't think was, any any water movies are ever fun to film. Yeah, one of the lessons for the future actors out there is don't take a movie that's set on water. Yeah. It just sounds miserable for 97 different reasons. You're just cold and wet for, for You're cold, months. you're wet, you need Dramamine, you get sick. That there's you're disoriented half the time. It just sounds awful. Apex Mountain, Gloucester. Where's Manchester by the Sea set? I don't know. I think this is the best Gloucester movie though. How, what's what's the competition? I don't even know. Well, there you go. Apex Mountain for Gloucester. John C. Riley, no, no. Wahlberg, no way. Clooney, no. But you could make a case. Bearded Clooney could be potentially. I think you could make the case that this is Apex Mountain for traditional movie star Clooney, but I can already hear people starting to scream at me about that. I don't feel like there's any Apex Mountain anything other than uh, Biggest Wave in a movie. I, I, I don't know. Pick a nits. John Hawks at the, what's the bar called? The Claw? The Crow's Nest? Crow's Nest? Yeah. Deciding that he likes this, you know, not attractive bitter lady who's like chain smoking at the bar by herself and just he's like this is the one <laughs> I'm taking my shot and just that whole scene is so fucking weird I have no explanation for it I didn't put it in what stage is the worst because I honestly don't know what the hell's going on so do you think they just felt compelled to give him like a humane, humane storyline of like why what he has to live for but then like, he, in the funeral at the end, she's in the funeral. Like she's one of the wives. I was like, you guys talk for seven minutes at a bar. <laughs> it's inexplicable. <laughs> I don't understand why they did it. I, it makes no sense to me. Yeah. At least I, I'll just say it, it didn't make sense to me. Um, Clooney, the character versus the real life guy, but Clooney just his game plan of let's just drive right through the storm. Yeah, that's not that's a that's a, a nitpick. Yeah. It's very Mike D'Antoni in any playoff series where she's like, no, no, keep shooting the threes, it'll be fine. Keep firing them up. There, it's it's one of these rare movies where a lot of expertise gets called into question. Cause like on both boats, the captain is like basically dooming them. Yeah. And so people are just like, Are you sure we should be turning into this? Like what uh what Philly coach did he remind you of? Brett Brown? <sighs> No, not for, for mid two thousands. Andy Reid, <laughs> kind of maybe like a like a late period co-tite. Oh, a co-tite. Okay, yeah, not not good game planning. All right, uh, and then I got to be honest, I don't care about the Coast Guards. I don't care about Cherry Jones, Bob Goten, and Karen Allen in that whole plot. I don't know why they involved it. I, I guess they were thinking structurally if they just kept the guys on the boat, it would get monotonous. You needed to break it up. And maybe there's some aesthetic value to these guys would have been saved if this other thing hadn't happened. But I just think every time it takes you out of the movie, I just want to be on the boat with Clooney and Wahlberg and Hawks and John C. Riley. And I don't care about these other people. I don't know where they came from. There's no setup scene where they're on the boat and it's nice out and we just get to see them having lobster for two minutes where I'm like, oh, these people, all of a sudden they're just in distress. Yes. And I think it's the biggest flaw of the movie. I think that it's from a version of that screenplay or this movie that was about the storm and not the Andrea Gale. Hmm. Like you could make a movie that was way more like cross-cutting between this small boat, the Coast Guard, the weatherman, the people on the Andrea Gale, 
the people on Greenlaw's boat and it's like a cast of like 25 people and it's like one of those kind of basically like more of like a TV movie where it's like it's like Crash the the story of the yeah or not even like Crash but more like a a more traditional disaster movie where it's about this thing that's going wrong and these people who are affected but then I think the movie itself starts off with 45 minutes where you're like well it's got to be about these guys on the Andrea Gale because now I know about their wives and ex-wives and that they live in Sarasota when, when it's not this time of year. So you're expecting it to be basically this really homespun, heartfelt story about these guys. And when it then goes wide and becomes about Jonesy and Jeremy for half of the movie, you're just kind of surprised. No no shots right. to the Coast Guard. Yeah. All due respect to the Coast Guard, but this wasn't a Coast Guard movie. It's about the six guys in the boat. And they made that Coast Guard movie with Kevin Costner and Ashton Kutcher where they're, where they're always jumping out of helicopters. Remember that I one? I kind of like that movie. Yeah. Does that make me a bad person? <laughs> Why would it make you a bad person? I don't know. It's not a good movie. I kind of enjoyed it. Um, another picky nip for me. Is this movie set in 1991 or is it set in 2000 when the movie came out? Well, tell me why. What What is it about this movie that makes you wonder that? I think it's 91. It, pretty sure, right? 91. Yeah. Again, the problem here is Wolfgang Peterson, German guy. Give me a shot of the 91 Red Sox on the TV. Isn't it the fall though? Show me. I don't think we made the playoffs that year, but Clemens, just show me some Clemens. Yeah. Just show have me I, a little Mike Greenwell. Talking about Dr. K. Yeah, sure. Or or I don't remember if that was Sam Horn's rookie year, but some sort of like low-key, subtle Red yeah. Sox thing. Where little like, Ellis oh, yeah, Burks the, talk. Yeah, oh, the ninety, he, the ninety-one Red Sox. Oh yeah, those guys. But I, I just feel like they have to. We have to see Clemens on the on the TV. What were the ninety-one Celtics like? Well, this is set in the summer, right? Uh, it had to be. the I Red think Sox. it's late summer because I think it's like the last run he can make of the season. Well, the other move they could have had was it was just a completely atrocious Patriots run. So there could have been a Patriots <laughs> preseason game on where they're losing yeah. 28 to three at halftime or something. I just feel like if you're going to do this and you're going hardcore Massachusetts and you're, especially if you're in Gloucester, like how, how is sports Bobby is not on. talking about the Sox? Yeah. Sports is on. People are looking up. If you're at the Cape in July, the Red Sox are in the background. They're the background noise for the summer. And uh, I was annoyed that they weren't on there. You have any other picking nets? No, you got them all. Okay. Could this be remade as a 10-episode Netflix show? God, I would hope not. That'd be a long 10 episodes. Yeah, I I, I don't think I would have any interest in this being a 10-episode Netflix show. I Especially thought the movie was ending. 15 minutes too long. Yeah. Um, probably unanswerable questions. I only have one. Bigger bummer, dying in the perfect storm or missing out on 12 Boston titles in the end of the Red Sox curse. What would you what would you say? Well, are we sure that Billy isn't like an early Marlins adopter? You know, cuz they've oh, got the, they've got the fish logo and he's already makes his his home down in Sarasota, he says. That's where he calls home where Jody his ex-wife is. So maybe he's more of a, like a Bobby Bonilla guy. <laughs> maybe he switched. Yeah, they need an they need when this movie's on, they should just film an epilogue from 2017 where like yeah. their their kids are at the Red Claw, whatever that bar was. Right. And Chris being like Chris is married to Theo Epstein. <laughs> no, they're like, man, Bobby and Billy, they wouldn't believe we won six fucking Super Bowls, four World Series. These guys wouldn't have believed it. Maybe that's the epilogue they should uh, just add. Uh I don't really have any other unanswerable questions. I, I we could go into a whole what would you do? Especially when you're underneath as those waves are coming, what would be your move? I just my little experience boogie boarding and never getting like turned over in that, like I don't think I would have done much. I think you just at a certain point the ocean is kind of calling the shots, right? Maybe put a life raft on. Would, would be you my have been do you think you would have been like guys, let's dump the fish? Oh and just, yeah. And and hang out. You in know? five seconds. Yeah. Dump the fish. We'll go back. Yeah. We got this. We got dumped the fish. Guess what? I want to live. We're not being able to sell the fish if we're all dead. We're out. But yeah. I think that's why in real life, the version of this story sure. is they had no idea the storm was coming. And uh, they did it. All right. Who won the movie? I'm going to go Peterson. I'm going to go Wolfgang. 
because I really wow. like this. I really like In the Line of Fire, and I think that the set pieces and the way that he he builds this movie are save it from any accent work, any sort of sappiness. And even though he does spend quite a bit of time with the Coast Guard unnecessarily, I really, I really think he did an amazing job in this movie. What do you, what do you think? I, I can't give it to him for not, in, not including any 91 Red Sox footage <laughs> and for not caring about Diane Lane's accent. I just can't. I'm going Wahlberg. Okay. I think he wins the movie. I, I think he's the best character. It's the best performance. And it sets up the next 20 years of his career. Because I think you come out of this, you're like, that guy's a movie star. Yeah. Everyone's saying Clooney is the big A-lister. And he go, went toe-to-toe with him. And he was just as good. So that would be my choice. Okay. We should mention, um, what's, can we bring Craig in here at the end? Craig, are you there or did you, did you pass out? Yeah, what's up? Craig was deeply moved by this movie. Um, this, this movie messed me up. Craig, you, didn't, you hadn't seen this movie. It was date night, perfect storm. How'd it go? Way too stressful. You know, it's a stressful time in, in the world right now. Global pandemic. This is not exactly a relaxing film. Yeah. Did you know what was going to happen? <sighs> no, I, I thought, my guess was like John C. Riley was going to die and like they would all make it and it would be great and they would all like, or one of the Clooney or Wahlberg would die. But when, the, when they all just decided like, yeah, this, this boat's going under and Clooney stays, I was like a mess. I was messed up. <laughs> <laughs> so that's interesting because- you know, we know this because we knew the story and when the movie came out, you knew how it was going to end. But like, there's this whole generation of people and then future generations who don't realize that they're all going to die at the end. No, it was like a Tarantino movie. They just all die. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to see the Tarantino version of this movie. They probably uh, never they never leave Crow's Nest because they all like shoot one another in that bar. <laughs> something easier. How about the Sandlot next time? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. All right, we'll work out. Did Liz cry? No, but y- your boy might have cheered up a little bit. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> it was tough. It was sad, man. She was going in and out and I was just locked in. You and me, Craig, for the long run. Bobby. <laughs> um, all right. That was the perfect storm in the rewatchables. We'll be back next week with another one. I don't know the movie yet. We're haggling. I'm trying to convince Chris to do St. Elmo's Fire. And you don't have to convince me of anything. I got debate. my saxophone right here. Well, I, I was thinking Joel Schumacher did die a couple days ago. Let's honor him. We could do right, that or like, we could do Flatliners. No, let's do St. Elmo's Fire. I have a lot of thoughts. All right. Okay. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Rewatchables. Don't forget to support The Ringer and The Ringer Podcast Network. See you next time.